This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. But it's one possible. We'll talk about that coming up after 2.30. And I'm fascinated by it. We'll get into that later on. A few other stories I wanted to get to as well. Uh, but off the top in this hour, looking forward here to a, a provocative conversation with our next guest, who uh, certainly never shies away from provocative conversations. And I think her book is meant to, to provoke a few itself. As the book describes it, it's a debut collection of fierce and funny essays about growing up the daughter of Indian immigrants in Canada, a land of ice and casual racism by the irreverent, hilarious cultural observer and incomparable rising star, Sachi Kuhl. Sachi is a cultural writer at BuzzFeed. The book is called, One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter. Sachi, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, Now, you're based out of Toronto now, but you're, you're from Calgary originally, right? I am. I used to live in the Southwest. Okay, well, let's talk about this book. This is a, a collection of essays, but the, these are very personal essays. So uh, tell us a bit more then about what the motivation was behind doing a book like this in the first place. Um, I think good nonfiction writing feels like to your reader that they're being seen and that they're being heard. And especially if you're somebody who doesn't feel like they're represented very often, it can be of great comfort. And I think it cures a lot of loneliness. So I think... I, I, I would hope that that's what it does to somebody who reads uh-huh. it. Was it um, for you? Was it was it therapeutic? Was it was it difficult? Was it emotional? Oh yeah, I mean, writing nonfiction is an awful process. I would not encourage it for anybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you spend a lot of time just going over old memories and trying to make sense of them, and you spend a lot of time trying to analyze the motives of people in your past and of trying to make peace with things. And the thing is, is I don't have closure on everything. A lot of people don't get closure. So you spend a lot of time just trying to end stories that aren't done yet. Yeah, because, I mean, this is about you, but it's about your family. It's about close relationships. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're bearing a lot here. Yeah, and I mean, there's also, you know, more political and social topics. Like, how do I write about rape culture with any closure? Because I don't have closure on it. How do I write about racism with any closure? Because I, I, I don't have any closure on it here or in the United States anywhere. I can't feel complete on that. So you have to just try to find a way to make conclusions that are not definitive, but at least meaningful. Well, these are big and timely issues mm-hmm. as well, right? Yeah. And you know that full well. I do. I live it. You do. <laughs> and look, people know you. I think a lot of people know you through social media. You become a bit of a, a Twitter personality. And, you, you know, you're very uh, blunt, very outspoken. Yeah, mouthy. Mouthy? Sure. Yeah. We can call it you can that. say mouthy. I'll let, I'll let you well, say I'll it. Well, I'll let you say it. Yeah. And, and I'll agree with you then. But, uh, but that's, that's by design, right? Well... Not re- I'm. Like you're not. You're not playing a character. Oh no! Necessarily. I'm I mean, it's like you. That. Yeah. But you don't. You don't hold back. Well, it's a version of myself. I think the internet is uh, is a way for us to take versions of ourselves and curate them and present them to an audience. So it doesn't make it false, but it isn't. I'm not running around screaming all the time. I would be very tired and possibly arrested if I did that in real life <laughs> sure. as I do on the internet. But. 
But what's what's it like for you being outspoken and being a woman and being a visible minority? I, I'd imagine you encounter a lot of, uh, shall we say, trolls. Yeah, I mean, trolls is like a gentle way to Very to, gentle. to refer to somebody who's engaging in what what I would call criminal harassment. So yeah, I mean, there's there's a ton of that, and I, I mean, there's uh, if you live anywhere. Or, or if you are a person who isn't specifically a part of the majority, someone's going to run at you online. Um, I think it's getting worse. It actually does feel like it's getting it? worse post-Trump. I, I've noticed a, a shift. Um, and platforms like Twitter don't really care. And they don't help. And they, they don't put any safeguards in, in place. Well, to they're trying to, to kind of, I mean... <laughs> Once in a while, they, they intervene, right? And yeah, I mean, it's taken you know, them 10 years. Milo Yanopoulos yeah, off Twitter. It's, ta- it's literally right? taken them a decade to decide that they need to start taking this seriously and put in some safeguards. But, I mean, that's far too little, far too late for me to care about. Because I, I suspect these people that you're dealing with, they want to put you in your place, right? They want to shut you up. They want to intimidate you. Yeah, I think it's a lot of anxiety about when you've got uh, women who are uh, talkative and opinionated, and when, especially when those women aren't white, Um there's a lot of rage that comes into play as if where do you get off or, or how dare you behave like this? You know, you should not be this um, so bold as to have an opinion or to to be, you know, thoughtful or to be saying anything in public. Um, more often than not, the people who yell at me online are white men, straight white men. Yeah. And all of those attacks, they're so rarely about the ideas or about the work, but they are about uh, my face or my body or my uh, gender or my religion or, or whatever else, something that is... Um, not really a part of what I'm working on, but that is very easy to to attack. Or that they don't know much about you anyway. No, of or course who you not. are. No. Or your background nothing. or any of that. No, they know right? nothing. Um and because part of what you, you write about in the book is is your own identity, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, how do you define yourself? I mean, do you, obviously you're you're Canadian, right? I mean, maybe people assume that you're not. Well, uh, that I mean, you've immigrated <laughs> to this country, but I mean, your identity as a Canadian, your identity as as an Indo-Canadian. I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, I don't I don't introduce myself as you know, hi, I'm the child of immigrants. It's not really the first thing that I think of. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of first gen kids and a lot of people of color end up sort of absorbing this version of their identity because it's how the world treats them. So I don't know what my life would have looked like or how I would have how I would present myself if I wasn't in a white majority country, city, if I wasn't raised in places that were white, where my race was really interesting to people, good and bad. I don't know what I, how I would articulate these things if, if I had a different upbringing. I don't. You know, I grew up yeah. in Calgary. Calgary is pretty white, especially at the time when I was here. Sure. Um, and so, of course, it, it, it frames how I, I identify and how I look at myself. Right. And because, of course, it shouldn't matter. And I think there are a lot of people who believe that it doesn't matter. We're all Canadians. Everyone's equal here. But yeah, what's, that's a cute opinion. <laughs> but I, I hear it all the time. Sure. Right? And I realize yeah. that, look, obviously, uh, as, as a white male, I yeah. see things through, through a different lens. Mm-hmm. And I, I, as much as I can be empathetic, I can't put myself in your shoes. No, of course not. No one's asking you to, though. They're just asking you to listen. Yeah. That's it. Seems reasonable enough. It does. You'd be surprised at how hard it is for some people to follow that basic direction. Why do you think that is? Because people don't like to listen. They think they're right. And I think also, especially in Canada, there's this anxiety about uh, admitting that there are problems when it comes to race and gender. We especially like to compare ourselves to the states. Mm -hmm. We like to say that everything here is fine. So we have this, you know, hippie, liberal PM 
who's like super handsome and everyone's into him. <laughs> and then in the States, they have yeah. Donald Trump. And yeah. so we like to think, well, we're doing really great because that's that's the re- that's the point of reference. But that's a lie. And it's a lie that anybody who isn't um, white can tell you. They will tell you that. But I think it causes a lot of anxiety for people who live here who don't experience that. And it is so out of their their realm of what is reality that they can't hear it. And it makes them angry. I've never seen people get so angry as uh, white Canadians get about this, you know, false superiority complex. Right. Well, and, you know, look, I I think a part of it is because maybe it comes across to them as they're being told that they're racist, that they themselves are racist. And people bristle at that. A lot of people have instincts, you know, that they were raised with. Sure. That that make them racist. Brown people do too. I mean, I don't. Our, my community is not immune to this right. at all. We, you know, a lot of Indian communities and a lot of brown communities at large have a lot of anti-black racism woven into how those kids are raised, and a lot of us have to fight against that. White people just have different ones and more, frankly, because you guys get to run things. You guys have the wealth, you have the power. There's a lot more privilege where you guys are coming from. But um, yeah, I, I get it. I know it's scary to be told that maybe you were you were bred with things that you don't associate with yourself, but it doesn't mean that it's incorrect. Right. But that just makes it all seem all the more hopeless that this is just ingrained in people and it's going to take generations to. Yeah. Of Make course, it all fade but away. is that not, I mean, to me, that that's worth the work. Sure. But yeah, I mean, the, but there's no easy and quick fix. No. Oh, no, no, right? no, no. No one ever said there there was, you know, I mean, the, 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 the efforts that societies and governments and institutions make to try to, to turn the tide on something like racism are, you know, finite. Yeah. And now, look, I mean, my situation's a lot different, but I'm also the son of an immigrant. My father was born in Scotland. I don't have any connection to Scotland. I've never been to Scotland, but I mean, it's, I think it's viewed differently. What about your own connection to India? Did you feel as though you, you have one? Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a hard thing to contextualize, I think, when you're not from there. But I mean, we went recently, we were there a few years ago. There's three essays in the book about the trip that we took. And right. it, it was a it was a really powerful and deeply frustrating trip. You know, I went with um, my parents, who were both immigrants, and my brother, who was actually born there, but has seemingly no tangible connection with it. But we also brought my sister-in-law, who's white, and my niece, who's biracial. So it was a really odd experience to see how how connections shift and the connection my niece might have to this country that this was the first time she had been. She doesn't really look brown. You know, it's, it's, she she has a very distant relationship with it. And I didn't realize how much closer I was getting to that part of my existence. I'm still not sure. I think it changes. I mean, I'm still pretty young, so who knows? Right. But, um, yeah, I, I certainly, I feel some pull. It's funny because I was Russell Peters, right, who's a very famous uh, Canadian comedian. And and as he put it once, and he was talking about what it was like for him going back, that when he's here, he, he really feels a sense of Indian identity. And when sure. he's there, it just reminds him of how Canadian he really is. Yeah, I mean, the children of immigrants and immigrants as well and um, people of color live in dualities. You can't just be one thing. You have to be lots of things. So, you know, this is in the book as well is that when I'm in Canada, I'm really brown. I'm I'm very much an ethnic person and people notice. And when I go to India, I'm very white and I'm very much a part of a privileged class because my skin's really fair. Um, so it, you you never just get to be the one thing. You have to you have to be contextualized and complex. And how does that relate back to you at, at a personal level in 
in feeling your own sense of identity? I mean, I think I'm working on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long road. <laughs> um, you know, right now, uh, I feel a, a, a great sense of peace at, with, you know, my family and where we're from and, and, you know, how I identify as a person of color, as a woman, a woman of color, as an Indian person. But, you know, who knows what will happen? I, I also think as time goes on, I realize more at fault with our community and, and you know, that's maybe the next thing I need to start thinking about. The first, the first step was sort of recognizing where I was from, and now I need to play with the, the complexities of it. But you're not, I mean, you're just trying to be you. I don't get the sense that you're trying to be a, a spokesperson for no, a no, cause no or a one, community. No one, right? no one, no woman of color or person of color who ends up writing about those things really wants to be that, but we have to be because there are so few of us in the world working like this. So when one of us gets our foot in the door, we end up having to speak to for all of them, which is going to be a failure. I mean, you, you, for example, do not have to speak for all white men. No one would ever ask you to do that. It would be absurd. But because there are not that many brown women writing books, I am going to end up having to carry a torch for a bunch of them, which is not fair because I will fail a lot of them and their experiences will inevitably differ from mine. Um, but there just, there just aren't that many of us. Well, and in the media in general, right? And I yeah. mean, this is a weird period for the media because, you know, we're, we're struggling to, to remain relevant. We're struggling to remain in existence, period. Sure. Uh, so when we try to address challenges like bringing in more diversity, it's kind of, well, let's let's stay alive first. So what, what are you finding? But why, but it, why is it that you would, that staying alive is in contrast to well, I'm not saying that it people. is, right? Yeah. But it almost seems but me, but as though all, the, all other challenges sure, sort but of that, pale in comparison. Sure, but that challenge could actually fit the, the f- could fix the issue of, of, of media having struggles. If you hire people who are from different backgrounds, who speak different languages, who have different family You're more relevant context, to more people. Right? Who are different uh, races and ethnicities, you will inevitably end up being more relevant. The, the struggle we're having is that we fill newsrooms with, you know, white, men and mostly men and then women. And so then you end up having a really narrow look at the world. And then you wonder why no one's, you know, getting your, your paper, your magazine or whatever it is that you're selling. Well, you're, you've missed this great swath of the country who just doesn't, who doesn't, it doesn't appeal to them. Well, right. And I mean, you know, BuzzFeed has certainly, I I think, played a role or or at least uh, filled a void in that sense. Even though, you know, critics might say like that's clickbait and listicles. BuzzFeed is more than that. Of course it is. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think if you think it's clickbait and listicles, then you aren't looking at the website. I mean, that's a portion of it. But I, I, I mean, I don't see why you can't do both. I mean, those are, those are fun things that everybody deserves a break. Go sure. ahead. Look at a cat video. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But, you know, BuzzFeed News breaks a lot of stories. They have, they have covered Trump extensively. They covered his election, you know, ruthlessly. And, and they covered the election broadly, ruthlessly. Um, and then I work for a section called BuzzFeed Reader, which is all long-form essays and, and long-form reporting. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a huge site. Well, and it's a platform, and, and these are additional voices that... Of course, yeah. ...wouldn't be there otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? we, have, we have lots of people of color working for us, and... You know, it's certainly something we, you know, we think about it because it's, it's relevant. How else are you going to appeal to an audience if you don't have that audience somewhat represented? Yeah. So does it leave you feeling optimistic about the future of the media? I'm not optimistic about anything. (laughs) No, I guess not. (laughs) It can't be. I don't have time for it. (laughs) Hence the book title. Yeah. Uh, What do you want people to get from the book? I I would like it to make you uh, laugh and make you uncomfortable. That's it. That's an interesting combination. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. If you can, you can tolerate being uncomfortable if you think it's a little funny. So that's the, that's the one, two punch. Probably helps. Exactly. All right. Well, the book is called one day we'll all be dead and none of this will matter. Sachi, it's been great chatting with you here today. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. All right. There you go. And that's uh, Sachi cool. As mentioned, also a senior writer with Buzzfeed, a uh, quick break here. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.